Counselor Accents Podcast. Two school counselors who love their jobs. Oh, and they happen to have Southern accents too. Bless their hearts. I'm Laura Rankhorn. And I'm Kim Crumbly. And together we are Counselor Accents. And Laura, you have heard me talk about Liz Huntley until you are probably sick of her already and you've not even heard her open her mouth yet not at all because just what you told me has been so inspiring and now I get to hear it for myself so I am ready for this we are so excited to have Miss Liz Huntley I'm going to tell a little bit about how uh, she came into my view into my world but um Liz, thank you for coming on this morning. It's early. Our school has not, you know, this, we're just clean up day. We're just cleaning up here today and getting ready to get out of here. Uh, and so this is early uh, in the morning before school has even uh, started. So we thank you for meeting with us uh, this early. And we know you are so busy, but thank you, Liz, for coming on. Tell us a little bit about you, uh, what you're doing right now. Yes. So uh, I am a lawyer by trade, a child advocate by triumph is how I like to describe myself uh, because I do wear many hats in that space uh, as both a lawyer in my state and as a child advocate. But uh, but basically, I, I practice law at Lightfoot Franklin White. I do a lot of work uh, with governmental agencies uh, that serve family and children. So that tends to be my wheelhouse, although I do traditional uh, legal practice stuff as well. And married with three beautiful children, uh, one that graduated from college and one that's uh, from Auburn and one that is a uh, rising sophomore at Vanderbilt and a six-year-old who's graduating kindergarten. <laughs> I love, I love that she has such a, a wide range there in age of her students. So and I love teachers so much that I married one. So oh, <laughs> now I did not know that part. I did not know that. So that's a little bit of, su- of a surprise. And you're hitting the Tennessee with uh, Laura, the yeah, Vanderbilt, yeah. and and of course uh, Alabama. You know, roll tide there, and and War Eagle. So okay, because well, I was like, I wait a minute. I went to Auburn for undergrad, and I serve on the board of trustees there now. And I went to Alabama to law school. So I serve on the board of governors there. How so funny. I serve both schools, give money to both places. So, you know, and, the same and, and money Vanderbilt. to Vanderbilt. <laughs> so I'm making my rounds. <laughs> we'll see oh. AJ goes. <laughs> well, we love to have Alabama. Rarely do we have an Alabama folk with us. Rarely. So we are thrilled to, that you will be able to understand us. We will not have to... Uh, Go in and, and translate our Southern <laughs> slang. We won't have to do that. So uh, let me just say, Laura, that my work husband, my principal, I call him my work husband. That's funny. <laughs> Richard Orr uh, and my nephew uh, were at a conference that you spoke at. And I think it rocked Richard Orr the principal's world and my nephew they both came back and had a sit down to tell me how great you were and how life-changing uh for them to hear you and so that took a year process because you stay booked up as we've talked about earlier before we went on the air you stay booked up quite a bit so it took a while but Richard Orr persevered until we got you it was during the pandemic and it was uh it was a virtual meeting that we had with you and all a couple of schools went in together. And uh, I don't think there was a dry eye. I really, you just, you just empowered us for the new school year and things that you said, we reminded each other as educators, as we were working through that with our students and the different trauma and the different situations. And so Thank you for this year, and that was our inspiration that helped us get through. And we, none of the educators who heard you this, at the beginning of our school years forgot what you said. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always my blessing to be with the educators. So I, I get way more out of it than you guys. Oh, um, so I, we, I'm taking a talking stick from you now, and I'm giving it to Liz because I don't want to hear any more from you. I want to hear from her. I want to hear from Liz too. I'm not even angry for your. Smart aleck attitude this morning. Drink your coffee. Hey, have you had coffee? So, Liz, we're going to turn it over to you because we would love to hear your story and anything that you have to share with our listeners. 
Yeah, sure. So um, in addition to practicing law, I also am the co-founder and president of the Hope Institute. And at the Hope Institute, what we do is we help schools build a culture of character in their schools. And uh, we've been in existence for nearly four years. We've served over 100 schools, you know, which has touched nearly 50,000 students in the state of Alabama. Uh, and, and I'll tell you a little bit about why founding that organization, founding that organization was so sort of a full circle moment for me in, in my advocacy work, because it was a direct way for me to be able to help schools make the impact on the lives of children the way it happened for me. So yes, I'm a lawyer and do all of this cool stuff now and have this beautiful life with my family, but I was born into a home where my parents were drug dealers. My mom and dad were drug dealers. And when I say drug dealers, I'm talking the real deal, like heroin, marijuana, all of that stuff. And we lived in Huntsville, Alabama, which is an urban area in Alabama. And uh, we lived in the housing projects there. And there were five of us, five kids, and we had four different fathers. And my mother had given birth to us from age 16 to 21. So you do the math. So by all accounts, it was a very dysfunctional situation. But for the educators listening, and you all know that it's really interesting for children, and I truly believe, and I'll speak about God. I'm not speaking on behalf of your podcast, but there's just no way I can share my story because my, my, my faith is so important to me. But, you know, I, I really believe that God cloaks children with what I call sort of a... Uh, this sort of cloak of oblivion, right? So a kid can be in that level of dysfunction and not really have a clue that that's what's going on because I vividly remember my little early childhood and that my both of my parents were in the home, that my siblings were there. I love my siblings. We played with toys. We did all this stuff. Even though these things were going on around me at that point, nobody was hurting me. I was being fed. You know, basic needs were being met. Y'all know math laws rules, right? So I, I was fine. I mean, I, I had no idea that my uh, siblings had these different daddies or any of that. And, and there were people that were coming and going in our home all the time. Uh, no idea what that was about. There were bags of stuff on the table, sometimes piles of money. No clue. I'm just, that was my life. <laughs> and I'm just running around playing with my toys and being a normal, happy little kid. But as you know, with that level of dysfunction, it can't sustain itself forever. And so my dad got busted for dealing drugs when I was five and went to prison. And while he was in prison, my mom was trying to hold down the drug business herself, but she broke the cardinal rule of drug dealing. She started using their product heroin and she became a heroin addict. And for reasons unknown to me to this day, one day my mom just packed up our clothes and it was the end of the summer. So it wasn't unusual for us to go visit a grandma or cousins or whatever. And she took me and my younger sister to Clanton, Alabama, to the housing projects where my paternal grandmother lived, my dad's mom. She took my middle sister to a town near Birmingham called Hueytown. And then she took my oldest sister and only brother back to Huntsville, arranged for them to be with her sister. And she went back to that housing project, took out a gun and committed suicide. So now I do know I'm in dysfunction because when trauma happens for children, it's not like there's a plan. It's not like you get advance notice. So I, I ended up with my grandmother and, um, and it was, you guys, it was so hard because that's, it's one thing to have a disruptive event in your life. And, and for those of you listening and, and know about these, and I'll just sort of say them, you know, ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences are real things. And and there's 10 ACEs in the literature. You can Google ACEs and, and see what those 10 are. But I want to share that once that, that spiral effect of dysfunction went into high gear for me when I moved in with my grandmother, I experienced nine of the 10 ACEs that children experience. Nine of them. The only one I didn't experience was uh, divorce or separation. And let me just say that divorce in and of itself is not an ace. I do want to clarify that. It's when divorce and separation becomes a traumatic event for children because grown folks don't behave themselves. You know, that's when 
it becomes an ace. A lot of times people see that on the list and think, oh my gosh, I'll you know, create an ace for my child if, if I get divorced. And that's not true. It, it's several children, two parent homes function, do well, as long as the parents get along. Um, so, so that, that was my situation. So here I am, I'm five years old, separated from my siblings for the first time. My mom's committed suicide. My dad's in jail. I'm experiencing hunger insecurity for the first time because my grandmother was dirt poor. She had left a violent marriage. She was raising these last three, three young adult children of her total eight children by herself, living in the projects, cleaning houses for a living. So, you know, we, I went from food plenty to we might get two meals a day instead of three. You know, it was just a different situation. And guys, if that wasn't enough to deal with, within a month of me moving into that home with my grandmother, one of her young adult sons started to sexually abuse me on a regular basis. So when I say I know what it's like to be in darkness, I know what it's like to be in darkness. And I interviewed some ladies that, um, that knew me during that time. And I was curious and I went back and I asked them, I said, you know, what was I like during that time when I moved in with my grandmother? And I remember one lady, Miss Polly, saying, oh, sweetie, it was so sad. It's like when you when you moved in, you were just you were torn up by your mama's death. That's what she assumed it was. Right. And uh, and she said, you you just didn't make eye contact with folks. We used to have to tell you to speak up, to talk. And uh, you just went into this shell. She said, but baby. Eventually, you just snapped out of it. You just snapped out of it and everything was fine. And now look at you. You're all successful and a lawyer. And and you guys listening know that's not how it works, right? No, as resilient as and tough as a five-year-old can be, you don't have the ability on your own to just snap out of that level of traumatic experiences. And so what literally happened is that God used education to save my life. I'm not talking about using it to give me a better quality of life. That happened. But he used it to literally save my life because by way of background in our neighborhood at the time, we were going through the early stages of integration. We were a few years in. Tensions were still high in the community. And there were some ladies at a local Union Baptist church that said, you know what? We want to make sure our kids are ready to go to school when they go across town. So let's open up a preschool. We didn't have mandatory, we didn't have kindergarten available in public schools at that time. And so they opened up this kindergarten program at this church. They hired some of the black teachers that had lost their jobs in integration and they got a community action grant and they partnered together with the, the church to use their fellowship hall for this preschool. And those of you out there that know me know how passionate I am about working Uh, to provide access to high-quality pre-K to all four-year-olds here in the state of Alabama and advocate across the nation for it. Because let me tell you what a game-changer early intervention in educators can be for a child. So this condition that I'm in, I get up and I go to that school that morning, and I remember walking down there like it was yesterday. I mean, it was a small community. Everybody knew everybody's business. And I'm just ashamed of my whole situation. I mean, everybody knows my mom was a drug addict and committed suicide. They knew my dad was in and out of jail. You know, we were so dirt poor. The kids made fun of us. And I had no idea how these people in the school were going to react to me. And I was scared. You know, sometimes kids of trauma go and experience secondary trauma when they're in a school system that doesn't provide them with the things that they need. And, 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 and it's, and I know educators don't intend to do that. And that's why it's just been my mission to bring awareness to the culture of a school and its impact of a child on a child and on the children in the school, not to mention the staff and the faculty and the whole atmosphere. Right. So I get down to the school and my very first point of contact was Mr. Willie. Mr. Willie was a retired guy, deacon at the church who had volunteered his time to help the kids safely get across the intersection for the school. And I walked up to the door and I'll never forget. He looked at me with this big smile and he said, well, hello, young lady, welcome. Now, you guys, that kind of stuff, educators, they do it all the time. They see their kids out and they do this warm and biting welcome. And what they don't understand is it's therapeutic, like the power of those 
positive engagements are so much more than just saying hello and, and properly greeting somebody. Um, when, when a child is, is connecting with an adult and they got this story behind their eyes with so much trauma and anxiety and other things, it's like therapy. And so I, that broke the ice. I walk on into the school. I don't know what to do. I'm standing at the top of the stairs overlooking the room. And I remember I kind of cracked a little bit of a smile because this room was so beautiful to me. I mean, it, 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 y'all know what I'm talking about. I don't know how teachers do it. They can take $25 and turn a room into Disney World. I don't know how educators do that, but they do. I think they're all Martha Stewart's at heart, but they can. So, I mean, it, it is, I go in and they've got these little bitty desks that were just my size and all these age appropriate workstations and it's bright and colorful and clean. And I kind of smile because regardless of what type of, what quality of infrastructure you have for your school system, don't ever forget that sometimes that building that you think is run down and need to be replaced and has all of these problems might be the nicest place a child is for the nine months out of the year of their life. So never forget that, that it, it's a haven for some children. Uh, and, and so, and they notice that you've spent this time to create this beautiful environment for them to be in and they appreciate it. They just don't know how to express it. Right. So, so I, I kind of smile, but when those preschool ladies came up to me and they put their arm around me and they said, come on in here, baby. I almost cried because for the first time in my little fragile life, I felt the nurturing touch of an adult and I melted under it, literally melted under it. Guys, I cannot tell you how much I needed that. And, and so not only did they do that, but they got down on their knees and got close to my face and made eye contact with me and called me by my name in this positive way. And, you know, you think about that. If you're in an environment, I mean, my grandmother, I would love the woman to the day that I die, but she was a hard taskmaster. She had had a hard life. And so everything was about meeting needs, right? Everything was about Elizabeth, wash the dishes, Elizabeth, go to bed, Elizabeth, do this. I mean, in a firm voice, there wasn't a lot of nurturing. And then I get to this school and I'm hearing my name like this. Elizabeth, great job. Elizabeth, I knew you could do it. Elizabeth, I'm so proud of you. And educators do that stuff every day. And what they don't understand is the power of that stuff. It is so extremely powerful. Now, the flip side to that is if you're yelling and snapping at a kid, then they're just experiencing trauma all over again. But I was blessed. I was so blessed that I was in that nurturing, loving environment. And so I figured out real quick that if you do really smart stuff, like all those worksheets and paperwork things, that those ladies would really love on you. And if you (laughs) do really, really smart stuff, those ladies would give you prizes and stuff that you could take home. So I thought, well, shoot, this is a pretty good gig here. You know, <laughs> all this academic reading stuff, and they're going to give me prizes and shower me with all this love. I loved it. And so I walked into that building, this withdrawn, slumped over child, and I walked out of that building with a smile on my face and had done so much smart stuff that I ended up being valedictorian in my kindergarten class. <laughs> and I wasn't even trying to be valedictorian in my kindergarten class. Kids don't have any idea about academic excellence and getting a solid foundation. I was literally just responding to the love. I was responding to the love in that classroom. I, you know, I get frustrated when we don't talk about the word love in a school environment because we can call it whatever we want to call it, but at the end of the day, it's love. It's caring for somebody. I mean, I think teachers, it's certainly mission work to me. I mean, I think it's a calling because, and I know you ain't doing it for the money. I'm married to a teacher. I see his paycheck. And you're, nobody's trying to get rich being in the education world, you know, but, but it is such a calling on your life because 
there's only two institutions on the face of the earth where their sole purpose, the only reason they exist is to impact the lives of human beings and how they grow and develop as adults. One is the church. The only reason the church exists is to pour into the lives of human beings and shape who they become as individuals on this earth. And the second place is the school. That's the sole purpose of the school is to pour into the lives of young people that shape who they become as adults. That's, and if that's not mission work, I don't know what is, you know, and if that's to me, not God's work, I don't know what is. So that was, that was so life-changing. Now, if you'll indulge me for a couple of seconds to have a little bit of a science lesson here, I told you about these ACEs and these traumatic experiences and how I was experiencing nine of the 10 ACEs. Well, we also know in science that when, uh, by the time a child reaches age six, 95% of their brain is developed. And I don't mean the cumulative information for the brain. I'm talking about the actual organ. I mean, that organ has to develop the same way a heart, lungs, all of those other things have to develop. And, and so during that time period, when kids are experiencing trauma, as that brain is developing, the result of that trauma can actually stunt and alter the proper development of the brain. Particularly, we've learned in science, the frontal cortex of the brain, which is your executive function. That's where you process information. You make decisions. You, you decide, you try to decide how self-regulate and how you respond to people. I mean, if, if, if our rooms were to catch on fire right now, everything that we would do with all the processes would happen in the frontal cortex of the brain. So when a child's frontal cortex of the brain is stunted because of trauma, they experience before age six and that 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 stunt stunt of growth it becomes permanent well now that child has a challenge in properly processing regular executive functions that has nothing to do with the child the child that's why I get angry when I hear somebody look at a child that doesn't know how to self-regulate that acts irrational and they get frustrated and they say they say to that child, what is wrong with you? When what they should be asking is what happened to you. There's always a reason for behavior in children. It comes from someplace, I guarantee you, which is why I, I love going across this country doing trauma-informed presentations to educators and, and uh, those that are out there working with children because it's really important to understand that critical role that a school plays in helping those children not only survive that trauma, but in my case, have an opportunity at a decent quality of life. So, so that was my situation. So let me fast forward. So, I, I mean, you know, the school literally was the buffer to the trauma. My brain obviously developed the way it was supposed to. None of the trauma changed. I still went home to the sexual abuse, the poverty and all of that. But it was the power of that school that buffered that. So it's time for me to go to first grade. And I'm, I'm six years old. <laughs> I'm scared to death. No offense to anybody listening, but I hadn't been around white people in my life. So I was really nervous. Like, I don't know anything about these people. And because I was in my little bubble in my neighborhood and, and people were rumbling about integration and all of that stuff. So I get up that morning. I eat my breakfast put on my clothes. And my grandmother looks at me and says, Elizabeth, I want you to go over to that school. And I want you to tell the teacher to put an X everywhere I need to sign on the paperwork, send it home and I'll send it back tomorrow. So it dawned on me, my grandma is about to send me to this school by myself in the middle of integration at six years old, getting on a bus with first through 12th grade children. Y'all, I was terrified. But I was more scared of my grandma, though, so I got my butt on that bus and went over to the school. So, and, and here's how educators work. I, I'm just trying to tell y'all about these little small moments that you do every day that are so powerful. So I get ready to get on the bus, and I'm terrified. And my bus driver happened to be an, a middle school teacher, Mr. Fulford. And as I'm walking up the steps on the bus, he looks at me and he says, Okay, now you sit right here, right up here by me. So he had put all of the smaller children on the bus up near the front near him. He didn't have to do that. 
His job was to drive the bus and let everybody on, you know, and I could have marched back there and been picked on by older kids and just really remember I talk about the secondary trauma that can happen to a child when they leave their trauma at home to school. So, but he protected that. He had me sit up there next to him. So significant moments. So I get to the school. I don't know what to do. I look on the wall when I walked in and it said first grade. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to the first grade. I, I must be in the right place. Well, I didn't have any learning going on in my home. How did I know it said first grade? Well, because of that kindergarten preschool, I was school ready. Yeah. And so I stood there a little longer and there were sheets of paper on the wall and parents were coming in and they were scrolling up and down the list, looking for their kids and names. And they'd say, oh, little Susie, you're in such and such room. And they go off in the module. So I thought, well, my name's got to be up there. I'm going to the first grade. So I got on my tippy toes and I scrolled down the list until I saw my name. I saw what room I was supposed to go into and I headed that way. Now, how did I know how to read and spell my name? How did I know what a room number was? How did I know how to navigate from room to room? Because of that kindergarten preschool, I was school ready. I think as educators, we forget sometimes we're not just teaching academics, but we're teaching kids how to function. We're giving them tools to navigate in life. And so that helped them, that supports the resilience that they're going to need sometimes to get through. So I get to the classroom, no clue what to do, but I did know this. I sat in the front center desk and I sat in the front desk because those kindergarten teachers had told me don't nothing good happen in the back of the classroom. When you get your butt over there, you better sit in the front desk. So I mean, and I'm just sitting there, sitting up straight not knowing what to do. And it's chaotic because it's the first day of school. It doesn't matter if you're white, black, rich, poor. The anxiety's high. There's one boy crying in the corner, one girl not wanting to let go of her doll, you know, teacher talking to the parents. And it just seemed like an eternity had passed. But eventually the teacher noticed me at the corner of her eye and started to head my way. Now, I have a little confession to make about this teacher in this moment. This lady had this beautiful black silk hair she had these pretty eyes and this beautiful smile, and she looked just like Wonder Woman. <laughs> I am not kidding, y'all. She looked like Wonder Woman. This was the 70s, the mid-70s. The Wonder Woman show was on TV where the beautiful Linda Carter was Wonder Woman, and I watched the show all the time. And as a victim child, I thought one day Wonder Woman was going to come with the rope and the you know, in the cuffs and save me from the bad people. And so this lady's walking towards me and this is what happens in the minds of kids. I'm thinking to myself, could this be? Is my teacher Wonder Woman? Like how cool would that be? Well, it wasn't Wonder Woman, but she was my Wonder Woman. Her name was Miss Pam Jones, because let me tell you what happened next. She, she looked at me and with that beautiful smile and voice and said, well, hello, young lady, what is your name? Well, y'all, I panicked. I mean, I didn't know anything about what to do when I got to school. So all that could come out was, my name's Elizabeth Humphrey, and my grandma told me to tell you to put an X everywhere she needs to sign on the paperwork, send it back home, and I'll bring it back tomorrow. I just, <laughs> I had rehearsed it over and over again. And so, so I, um, so she paused. Now, you all listening know that so many things could have happened in that moment. So many things that could have changed the course of time, and I could not be here talking to you today. Miss Pam Jones could have called child services. Loved my grandmother till the day that I die, but she was wrong to send me to school that day by myself. Miss Pam Jones could have said, I don't have time to deal with this. You need to go to the guidance counselor, Miss Charlotte, and let her figure out what to do with you. She could have done that. You folks, this is a counselor podcast. Y'all know what would have happened in that scenario, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. all child services, 72-hour hearing, da-da-da-da-da, big major traumatic event. Or she could have done the worst thing that could have happened to me. She could have been one of those educators that brought their personal bias into the classroom with them. And I'm not talking about race. When you say bias, people immediately think about race. But there are educators sometimes that have biases against children because of their religion, their faith, their who, who their parents are, who their sibling was that came before them, if they, they had issues with that child, instead of sizing that individual child up for who they are. 
and uh, taking them individual by individual. And she could have been one of those biased type teachers, but she wasn't because instead she assessed that situation. And Miss Pam Jones realized my glass was actually half full, not half empty. Because in observing that situation and looking at me, not the circumstances, she saw a brave child. She saw a resilient child. She saw a child with a lot of potential. And in seeing that, with tears in her eyes, she bit down close to my face and said, Elizabeth Humphrey, you're going to be the smartest student I ever have. Now, if educators don't believe what they do is powerful mission work that pours into the soul of children, they clearly don't understand their profession. That was a life-changing moment for me. I mean, you know, for her to do that and say that, now I'll be honest, I was only six, so I thought it was a little weird that the lady was about to cry. But because of that experience in kindergarten, and the way she responded, I thought to myself, oh, well, I guess this is like preschool. If I do smart stuff for her, she'll love on me, too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I connected to that. And that's what I did. By the time I left out of her room, I was reading on a fourth and fifth grade level. And I was doing math on a second and third grade level. And I asked her later, I said, Miss Pam Jones, why did you teach me all that stuff in first grade? Because she did every she kept putting stuff in front of me. And this is what she said emotionally. She said, Liz, I had no idea what was going to happen to you. I didn't even know if you'd finish in my class. Like I knew the home situation was unstable, didn't know what would happen to you. But this is what I did know. I knew that God had put you on my clock. And as long as you were on my clock, I was going to pour everything into you that I could, because I didn't know what was going to happen when you left my classroom. And that's what she did. And I will tell you, that woman is still loving on me to this day. When I gave birth to my second child, she was at my house keeping my first child. And even when I gave birth to that little caboose surprise <laughs> that I had, she was the first person in the nursery to hold it. And guys, she was then and always will be my Wonder Woman. Always. Mm-hmm. And and. That's the power of educators and what it is that they can do and how they can buffer children. And so that's my story. My story was just a series of of contacts and path crossings with educators that God placed in my life at this pivotal moment that was so important where I needed an advocate uh, in my school and he provided it. And so because of that, I decided to put this in writing in my little book, More Than a Bird. And I wrote the book not because I I didn't even write it for educators. I wrote this book on a sixth grade level. We use it in schools for you to find you rallies and things like that. I wrote the book telling my story of all these educators and different ways in which they impacted my life on my journey through K-12 to be able to show students that no matter what your circumstance is, as long as you walk into a school building, you have an advocate. Yeah, are there some bad apples in the barrel? Absolutely, you know, but you're not going to walk into any school building in this nation and or in this world for that matter and not find somebody that's an advocate for children. And and so so the the book was written for kids. I have no I had no idea that I end up on your podcast or trumping all over the country and on into Canada, telling my story and sharing this message. Um, But God knew, you know, he knew that educators needed this message and that they needed this reminder to put a face, you know, with, with the work and with their mission and a real story. I mean, because the power of the human story is really powerful. And so, so in addition to practicing law and advocating for access to, high-quality pre-K for four-year-olds, we started Hope Institute because I want every kid to experience a culture and an environment that can serve as that buffer. And then even for the kids who aren't experiencing ACEs and traumas, like my children, 
even for them, don't you want a, a positive environment for them? Don't you want a loving, nurturing environment where there's a great adult culture in the school and character is instilled in kids? It's so important because it, even kids from affluent families and educated two parents and all of that stuff, we all need this because we are we are in a world that's so polarized that has so much going on that it is so important uh, for us to instill good character in our kids, which is why I started the Hope Institute. So um, I, I know I've been rambling, but you asked no. my story. And, and so the rest of the journey has literally been all these collections of stories that the combination of all of them shaped me into who I am. You know, it couldn't just end with Pam Jones. Then there was Art Smith. Then there was Myrtle Littleton. Then there was Miss Huff. Then there was, you know, so just a series of educators throughout my life that were there at those key times. And and then I'll just say this one last thing and I'll shut up and we can, I can answer any questions. I, you know, school's about to close now. And some schools, the doors have already shut. And I want to tell you why I named this book More Than a Bird because it's an odd name for a book talking about educators and that type of thing. Well, when I was in the third grade, I'll never forget this. I remember, because at this point, things had gotten worse in my house, if you can imagine that, because my grandmother had a, another adult son that had moved back home. He was in the military. Something happened to him. We don't know to this day. He was mentally ill. So he was just an emotional roller coaster to the extent that he would become violent. And the violence would get so bad that DH, the child services would be called. We'd have to go to a foster home. I mean, it was a roller coaster ride. So I remember getting on the bus the last day of school, like so many kids are going to do this week. And it gets me emotional just thinking about it. They're going to get on that bus. And I remember as the bus was pulling away from the school and my school was fading in the distance, I started to cry. And I didn't just cry, I wept. And I cried because I was leaving my precious school. I was leaving the one place where no adult hurt me. I was leaving the one place where my mind was stimulated to learn. I was leaving the one place where meals were structured and provided. And I was leaving the one place where I actually felt like a child. And it hurt. For some of your kids out there, they're, they feel like the Band-Aid's being ripped off right now as they walk out of that door for the last day of school because school is such a buffer. And I knew that I was about to go into my environment 24-7 for 10 weeks, you know, without any intervention and not knowing what would happen from day to day. And I was so hurt. Like, what did I do that now at least the one thing I have is gone and I, I don't get to have it anymore. So I, I remember going into this depression. Well, my Aunt Liz invited me to this church with her for a Wednesday night Bible study a couple of weeks after that. And I went not because I wanted to go learn about God. I mean, I'd go to church every Sunday with my grandmother. I didn't really have a real interest. I went because it got me out of my house at night. So I go to this Bible study with her new little church in the community. And the preacher said, well, I want everybody to get your Bibles out. And if you don't have one, one will be provided to you. This is Bible study. And that was different for me. Nobody had ever asked me to read the Bible, but because of school, I could read and I could read well. And thank God I could read well. They handed me a King James version of the Bible. <laughs> so so they, give me, they give me this Bible and we're reading all these stories and I'm experiencing something that I'd never experienced before. It's this emotion called hope. I'm experiencing hope because I'm hearing about this God that all these people had gone through these terrible things and this God brought them through and sustained them. And, you know, and, and I'm just fascinated. And we ended that night with the story of Joseph. Now, you educators, let's do a family, modern day family analysis of Joseph. For those of y'all that don't know the story, Joseph was the baby of 10 brothers and they had three or four different baby mamas and two of the baby mamas were sisters. Y'all, that was a hot mess. And there was all this tension and, and dysfunction kind of going on. And Joseph was daddy's favorite. Daddy made a big deal out of him being favored, giving him a coat of many colors and 
then this boy has a dream and he's bragging that all the big brothers are going to bow down to him. And those guys get so mad at him that they end up taking him off and selling him into slavery and then going back and telling the daddy that he got killed by an animal. Now, in modern day time, we would call that human trafficking, right? I mean, they stole the boy. Think about it. I mean, it was just, think how traumatic all of that is. Talk about child traumas, right? And then he's in slavery. But you know what was interesting that God did in Joseph's life? When he was with enslaved, um, the, the person, his slave master, recognized his potential and taught him. Like he was educated in his household. You know, a lot of times we jump right from Joseph being captured and sold to Joseph ended up being governor of Egypt. When we forget in there, there was God used education to develop the skill set that he was going to need to be to be used the way that he was used later in his life. And so he was if you read that scripture, you'll see how educated he was in that home and given great responsibility and taught things. And so Joseph, this same lad that had gone through all that trauma, ended up being governor of Egypt. And not only did he save his family from famine and starvation, he saved two nations from famine and starvation. So I'm sitting here, this rising fourth grade kid, and I'm reading the story with my own eyes and listening to the minister. And I'm thinking to myself, if this now, and this is reading comprehension, by the way, I'm thinking to myself, if this God can help Joseph and he went through all this bad stuff, maybe this God can help me. So I leave that night and all I can think about is this Bible, these stories of hope and everything. So I want to go back next Wednesday and we get back and we read through several scriptures and we end that night in Matthew 6, 26. And I'll paraphrase it. It says that if God will take care of the fowls of the air, and they neither sow nor reap, then he'll take care of his children. Aren't they better than a bird? And isn't that true, right? I mean, you don't see any starving fat bird, I mean, uh, skinny birds. You see birds are tweet, tweet, tweeting all the time because they know for whatever reason, humans can't help themselves, but take care of them, right? I mean, we even do our whole landscaping around birds. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we take care of the birds. So if God has instilled in us to take care of birds, feathered fowls, wouldn't he, want, wouldn't he instill in us to take care of children, human beings made after his own image? But here was the tragedy in that moment. As I sat there and listened to this preacher, I sat and struggled with whether or not I was more than a bird. Because when I looked at the birds, it seemed like the birds had it better than I did. And I'm sorry to get emotional about that, but it's really hard to go back to that place because I remember it like it was yesterday. Then the preacher said this. He said, you know that you're more than a bird because God will use people to love you. He will use people to love you, even when the people that are supposed to love you and do for you aren't doing it. Now, guys, it was like a light bulb came on in me because at that moment when he said that, all I could think about was my school. All I could think about were my teachers and the educators that God had sent to love me. And I knew I was loved and I knew I was more than a bird. And so that night I began my spiritual journey by professing Christ and used the word of God to help shape my quality in my course of life. And then continued on my educational journey using education, the great equalizer as an opportunity to have a better quality of life here on earth. And from preschool to law school, God always sent people like you listening to love me. And so I know I'm more than a bird. And I titled that book more than a bird for the students at the time when I wrote it for them to know that they were more than a bird. But also now that I see God uses it in this way for teachers to understand their role in taking care of his little birds. So I I just want to say thank you for all that you do. Um, I've never been more driven in my life to support 
a profession than I am for educators uh, because I understand you guys, y'all are the, y'all are the secret sauce to me of society um, in terms of helping children, whether they're kids like me that experience trauma and lots of dysfunction to kids like mine that come from stable homes, no matter what, they all are educated. They're all touched by a school and that is so important in their lives. So thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Well, uh, I think Laura and I would not have been able to speak if we, uh, for once in our careers, I think our mouths were closed because we were crying listening to that. It's so inspirational. Um, I don't, I don't know where Laura popped off if she lost connection or what happened with her, but uh, I cannot. Oh, she said, she, I tell you what she just texted. She said, I cannot hold it together. I'm a mess. <laughs> so she has not emailed me and texted me while she's off, but she did text me while you were speaking going, I can't hold it together, which we couldn't. We were just sitting here crying. Same thing when, when I, uh, when you spoke to educators at the beginning of the school year, so much of what you said, and I hope I can hold it together. We, we use this year for students. I think a lot of times educators, especially in early childhood, because I have been an early childhood educator, we forget, and, and school counselors that are working with little beauties, I think sometimes we forget that they're going to remember what we say. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes if we would be more respectful and really think about what we are saying and how we are speaking, uh, I, rem- I, I have vivid memories of smells of my first day of school. I didn't come from any trauma whatsoever. My A score would be zero. But, but I remember, and, and kids have memories, and we have got to be so careful. All those folks that made such an impact, uh, I think sometimes as educators we may forget just because they're little doesn't mean they're not going to remember how they're treated. So I know that there are more stories throughout your life that, and I I, hope, I want to read the book. I cannot wait to read the book. In fact, I think that's going to be my book study that I'm going to do with my school. So uh, I challenge other school counselors. That might be a, a great idea for a book study. So Laura, we don't know where you went. Yeah, I'm sorry. Announcements going off, you know, sorry. I know, I do know. Yeah. I was going to tell you a book study. So, in fact, I'm, I'm doing an elementary school in Tallahassee, Alabama next Friday. So, I, I have a presentation that I do once educators read the book. Okay. That, um, that is sort of a, I don't know what you want to call it. I call it Know the Story Behind Their Eyes. And so, we, we sort of take a deep dive into practices uh, that that I've learned from surveying schools and through Hope Institute and the work that I've done across the country that are sort of effective practices and celebrating some of those in their schools to just sort of uh, take a reflection journey down what they gathered from the book and how some of those practices can be implemented in their schools. And, and, and like I said, I've got one uh, next. And now with Zoom, it used to be that I couldn't get to all of it because of uh, I'm one person and I can't physically get there, but with Zoom, um, and I'll go to them in person, but um, because they're a couple hours from my house, but uh, with Zoom, I've been able to do that um, just all over the country. And it, it's been, a, it's been a blessing because it's one thing to read the book. Then it's a whole nother thing to be able to have this very deliberate, intentional, intimate book talk, you know, where we're able to ask questions and share with one another. It's, it's a, it's, it's, I've, I've been so, I leave getting so much more out of it than the teachers uh, because they start to open up with each other and talk about their challenges because every school building is different. I mean, every, you have different demographics, you have different cultures. I mean, it's just different when you walk into each school. And so uh, that's been a blessing. So I'm certainly um, willing to do that if anybody is well, I'm raising my hand. So before any of our other listeners get involved in that, I'm raising my hand because I definitely, I want to order that for all of my teachers and do a book study. Can you explain the Hope Institute to our listeners? Yeah. Absolutely. So what we do is a school comes to us with a team of four to five leaders in the school and, and they're educators, counselors. It has to be at least the vice principal, if not the principal, we prefer the principal. Um, because if your leaders aren't in on board, then it's, we all know how that goes, right? 
Uh, and, and so those teams come, we're, we're housed at Sanford University, although we've got sites across the state now. Um, they come for a six-session leadership academy with the Hope Institute. And in that academy, they hear from, and I'm talking the top uh, uh, character education people in the world, I mean, that we have that come. They get their books, they do book studies, so they can really take a deep dive on what it means to build a culture of character. Because we know that when you have that kind of a culture, it, you know, I know that most educators are concerned about their metrics. They're concerned about their test scores and their attendance and all of those things. And what we've learned that when you make focusing on the culture, the plate, the rest of it fixes itself. We've got example after example of schools that have been in the Hope Institute that now their discipline is down 80%, you know, or their fights are down, the attendance is up, the morale of the teachers is better because now you, they, they make jokes. They say, y'all are trying to make us the Chick-fil-A of schools, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and because if you start with how people interact with each other and having a standard of excellence in character, the rest of the stuff is going to happen. I mean, it's just sort of, of a natural thing. And, uh, and so they do these six sessions, but the secret sauce to our program, I believe and it, and it, we, it evolved with our first executive director, not because we thought it up when we first started this is you all know that professional development is only as good as the executor, right? When they leave the building, I, I, as a lawyer, I have to do continual professional development and you hear stuff and you get all fired up about it and the materials are incredible. The speaker's incredible. You're so inspired. Then you go back to your school and life happens, you know, meeting after meeting and stuff after stuff. So there's never really that time to really implement what you've learned. So what we do is not only in these on these six sessions, do they have a whole day with us where we feed them a great breakfast? They get to eat an actual lunch without interruption, <laughs> a nice hot lunch. But they also have a lot of teamwork time where they're not at their school site. They can focus and they can actually start to think about how do we integrate this into our school? And then each school has its own, what we call a facilitator, which is a retired principal. Uh, so there's somebody that's been in their shoes and and has done it well themselves, that will go onto their campus. And that's looked different this year because of COVID, but will go onto their campus and actually help their team, their Hope Institute team on site, you know, to really figure out what's going to work for their school. Because there's no one size fits all for schools. It, it just doesn't exist. I mean, in, in reality, each school's different in their needs. You might have a school that needs to focus more on resilience you know, because of the circumstances of their students. And you may have a school that may want to focus more on integrity, you know, I mean, depending on their student population. So, and we use the um, the 11 principles from character.org as our framework uh, in terms of giving them a rubric and a guide on how to develop what it is they need to develop in this uh, culture. And we've had several schools. In fact, one was just announced a couple of weeks ago that have now been designated as national schools of character um, by, by character.org because of their uh, work and what they're doing with their students and what's going on in their schools. I know there was one school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, middle school. I remember going in there. They did a, the book study for the kids because normally school middle schools will do a book study with my book for the kids. And uh, I went to visit with the kids and I remember going in that environment and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, it was just kind of cold and the teachers seemed angry and, you know, the kids were a little disruptive. I mean, it just, it, it, it really, I mean, it bothered me the whole time when I left, you know, from the presentation. Fast forward three years later, that school's been in Hope Institute. I walked in there for another event that they were having. There were kids meeting me at the door with blazers on and the school crest that were ambassadors of the school and they were pleasant. They had all these positive affirmations everywhere. Um, the office atmosphere was different. Like everything had changed about this school and, and they were doing the amazing race that um, 
from the Clark Academy. So I served as one of the interviewers interviewing the kids to get them ready. And one of my questions was, what do you like about your school? And it became so consistent that I started doing tally marks on my paper to get a percentage of the kids that said this. They all came out the gate with, I know my teachers love me, or I know my school cares about me, or I I know they care about us here, or I feel loved, or I, you know, I mean, that was, you know, some kids like, you know, some of them, of course, really liked the PE teacher. He was the rock star in the building, you know, but it was still about love, right? It was about caring and, and feeling loved in this environment. And it just blew my mind. I was like, you know, just this, the teachers all really wanted things to be better, but it was just a matter of figuring out what's the recipe that works for us because it's in our hearts. We just don't know how to do it. So we don't do any magic in terms of, of inspiring something that's not already there for those schools that come to us. We just help them figure out how to do it. Right. And, uh, and because there's so many tools, I mean, if you Google character education, there's a, a gazillion different boxes of stuff that you can order to try to implement a character program when really it has to fit your culture, your type of students, you know, for it to be effective. Uh, so there's no one size fits all. So that's what we do. And it's a three year program. We ask for a three year commitment. So there's a year one for the cohort, a year two. And then a year three when they graduate out and then some of those leaders go on into our fellows program. So it's really been an incredible experience. The success I've seen in those schools, it's it's, y'all, it's my social justice, right? Like there were many things in my life that when I was growing up where people didn't do it for me, but now I get to do it for other children. And like going into that middle school in Tuscaloosa and seeing that transformation, I'm like, oh, my God, like God used started the starting of the Hope Institute to be there, that resource for that school that's now changed that whole school experience for those kids. It's just it's humbling and it's incredible. Wow. I want to be a part of that. Me too. How do we sign up? Is there an application interview? What do we have to do? Absolutely. So, so for you Huntsville people, we're actually going to have a site in North Alabama this year. Listen, um, I'll travel wherever you tell me. Yeah, and we'll get yeah. there. Yeah, they're really well, good at. I will send the that. So, what I'll do is I'll. I told you I'd send information on sort of the stuff I do for schools, and I'll also send the information on Hope Institute, what our cohorts are for this year. If anybody listening is interested, because we're expanding uh, to we're, we already did Florence. Now we're doing. Athens State that's going to capture Madison County and then we're also going down to uh, Mobile this year as well and that'll cover Washington and Baldwin County and all all of them. We actually had a school, Foley High School, their team drove to Birmingham to Sanford University to come participate in the Hope Institute. So um, and and they're they're doing amazing things at that school but it's just it's transformative for not just the kids but for the educators too. I mean, don't we all want to work at a Chick-fil-A basically, right? <laughs> this, this kind of environment where yeah. um, people are happy to be there and, and they're nice and kind and, you know, and, and motivated to do what they're there to do. I mean, it's important. We have actually, that's funny that you're using the restaurant uh, analogy because Laura and I have spoken on climate and culture and we've actually used a little video that's out there somewhere and it's like when you walk into a restaurant and it's like you know and they don't want to help you they it's a disaster it's nasty and and then so we've actually used that visual and then you walk in it's like can we help you and it it the whole you know the whole dynamics change so that's funny that you're using that because we've used that same analogy but um yeah gosh um I, I tell I told you, Laura, this was amazing. Our listeners are going to be so inspired by your words. And I Did think it's going to continue to change. At one point, I thought I'm not going to be able to pull it together. I'm, I thought I'm going to have to go have a moment and cry it out. <laughs> Tim and I have talked about once we start crying, then usually we're just a puddle for the rest of the day. And I'm tender this time of year anyway. So... I thought at one point I'm going to have to go home for the rest of the day because I can't, I can't pull it together. But I, 
I was not prepared for how amazing this was going to be. I, I yeah. knew you had spoken so highly of her, Kim, but this totally exceeded my expectations. It's like you hit every, every um, soapbox that we get up on. You said it so much better than we ever could. But I, and it's because she's lived it. You yeah. know, we can, we can uh, preach it, but we've not lived it and experienced it. And so thank you for continuing to share your story. I know it's hard to go back there and to say, and you probably have told it, uh, but thank you for retelling that story and, and going there and, and sharing that because I promise you it's going to change teachers and educators' lives. And get her book. Leah, thank you so much. Um, Thank you all for having me. And, um, and I'm just, I'm thrilled to be a part of your podcast. I think it's great that you all have this resource for educators to be able to come and listen and hear different ideas and things that are going on out there that might be resources for them. I mean, it, it, I tell you the most effective thing I've learned through doing Hope Institute is the networking that happens with educators and how they feed off of each other. I see that in the Hope Institute with the schools. They'll call and say, Hey, how did y'all do X? You know, and, you know, and, and, and they, I mean, y'all aren't, y'all are a profession where you're not arrogant. You're not, you know, just where you just want to know, like you just want to figure out the right way to do it. And, and if it's the buddy down the street or even next door, it doesn't matter. It's just about getting the job done so you can serve your kids well. And, uh, and that's exciting. So thank y'all for having this podcast to offer yet another resource uh, for educators to be able to go and, and learn how to further their mission work. Thank you. We appreciate it so much.